Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That's L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hey, we're hosting another live episode taping of Spotlight On via Zoom on Thursday, September 9th at 3 p.m. Pacific. Our guest this time will be Ji-Yoon Kim, award-winning classical pianist, podcast host, and author of Whenever You're Ready, which is out now from Greenleaf Books. Ji-Yoon Kim is a professional concert pianist who has performed in venues like Carnegie Hall, the Chamber Music Society in San Francisco, and the Stradivari Society in Chicago. As an accomplished performing artist and award-winning music educator, She credits her success to key disciplines, practices, and mindsets that she lives out every day. In Whenever You're Ready, she gives readers a personal glimpse into her life, shares wisdom and insights she's gained from her experiences, and shows people how to achieve their own personal and professional success. It's a simple, elegant, and powerful book. Please visit spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog or find the link in the episode notes to RSVP today. Today, the spotlight is on Scotty Stoughton. One of the more intriguing characters I've spoken to, Scotty calls himself a connector of people to each other, to great experiences, and to the world they live in. He does this as a festival and event producer, Winter Wondergrass being his biggest brand, as a river paddleboard guide, and as a singer and musician. Check it out. Hey, buddy. Hey. How we doing? Doing all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really good in this very moment. <laughs> that's about all we can ask for. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah, right now I'm good. It's maybe all we should ask for, actually. But no, that's great to hear. It's good to see you and meet you finally. Yeah, you too. This is awesome. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Thanks for your patience as well. We had a couple of schedule uh, tweaks there. I really appreciate you, uh, you being cool with it. So thank you. So as I was uh, getting to know a little bit about your background, the first question that came to mind for me was um, maybe I'll limit it to professionally so we don't have to have the big existential question, but how do you self-identify professionally? Like what is your main thing? (laughs) That's a great question. I have no idea the answer. Um, I think people have told me I'm a connector Mm. and I, it resonates with me and I am very passionate about creating opportunities for people to feel really comfortable and to be acknowledged and to be honored. I hate the hierarchy of the music business. I hate the ego driven um, components of, of humankind. So whenever I can create a beautiful space and facilitate an inspired moment. That's, that's what I'm supposed to do. So, you know, maybe connector, the other titles don't mean anything. Right. Yeah. I own the festival. Like gives a crap. The bill collector I does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure, but titles are interesting. 
and they lead to um, restriction, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So given that definition you gave me, I can see how that manifests um, as a festival creator or producer. I could see how it manifests as a musician. Um, I can even see how it manifests, um, you know, in some of the outdoors work that you do. Like that's, that's, that definitely is a clarifying sort of sentiment for me. Um, of the things you do, um, which are you least attached to? What could go away and you'd be okay? Hmm. I, was like, I love your questions. Uh, you're making me think. <clears throat> Luckily, I think I've got to a point where I've gotten rid of everything that doesn't feel me um, personally. And that's a good thing or a good result from COVID, I would say. Yeah. Um, at this point in my life, what I'd want to release, I think, is uh, the answer would be the, the simple mundane things of, of life and the arduous tasks that we all do, certainly. Um, but I'm searching for a more specific answer because it's a really good question. And, and it's, a, it's a good question to pose to myself every day. <laughs> like, what could you do to make it more um, wholesome, in a sense? Let me, let me ponder that. I think something will come up. But right, right now, I've spent really mo the better part of my life, um, probably why I was single till I was 48, like understanding my own path and journey and trying to identify what's most important before I had a lot of obligations and, and pressures that weren't inspiring to me as a human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So right now, I feel good. And, and combining everything I've loved from the world of, of nature and traveling and, and rivers with all that I've loved uh, musically and artistically as it's come together over the last year and a half, 18 months with this river wondergrass thing. Um, I would say everything's been shed and, and now it's finding a way to, to join all of the inspired elements of, of life. That's kind of what I'm shooting for. That's really beautiful. It's, it seems like it's the opposite of, um, of like of compartmentalization, like instead of having to have these different boxes that you control and try to manage to certain outcomes, it, it sounds like it's a much more integrated existence. Yeah, definitely. And um, my goals are probably different than most people in the music business. Um, you know, financial goals are way down. Um, they're important, certainly. Um, but it's all about using the tools you've been given to create a world that you can leave certainly better than you know it, right? And um, if we're not focused on that, like, what's the point? Yeah. You know? How does that notion express itself with a festival? How does, um, what are some obvious okay. and sort of non-obvious ways that uh, the world, or at least the your world and the world of the attendees, maybe even the artists um, might be better when they, when they leave your site. Um, we spend a lot of time walking in other people's shoes. Um, I will never forget the most important thing about throwing a music festival, whether it's 200, 2000, 20,000. It's that person that works a really tough job year round. They punch in and they punch out and they buy a ticket to your show and they save up and they call their friends and they say, let's meet at this place. I got us a room. We can put four people in a two bedroom and this is what it's going to cost. And 
we got a bunch of cheaper beer and we, we splurged on these tickets and we got there early and we managed to get down into the front row and we watched our favorite band perform. And I emcee the shows uh, sometimes or I'll sit in the pit from time to time. And I look more at those people than, than I ever do the band because I want to feel that and I want to always remember that that's the most important thing. And I think a lot of the bands really appreciate that because that is the intention of our community, the bonfire entertainment community. Uh, I want to know our volunteers. I want to know the guys that are cleaning our porta potties. I want to know the chef. I want to know the lead singer of the main band. I want to know the manager. And I, and I want to know our community at large and, and treat them equally and respect them and honor their dignity equally. Because once we do that, we create a space that feels different. And so I think... That's one of the things that we do that keeps us um, uh, interesting and, and fresh and, and a place that people want to return to. And, and I, I hear that a lot, which is probably the greatest compliment I've ever had, is that we feel different when we come to Winter Wondergrass or Camp Out or River Wondergrass. Like we come through the gates and there's something different. And it's really simple. It's like, take care of your people, honor the fans, respect the community, Make sure you've got great environmental ethics. Make sure you hire great artists, you know, that, that want to stay in town for more than a day. I book bands for different reasons. You know, I want bands to come in and go to the local coffee shop where that same fan rolls in and sees their hero having a cup of coffee in line and like, wow, like we are all sharing the same blood. We are all very similar. That's a big star to me, but they're right there having a coffee with me. And, and, they're talking to one of my volunteers, like that's what's important. And, and that's what we focus on to make sure that that feeling, that intangible energy is what we're offering. And, and that's how we do it. Yeah. How early into um, putting on events and festivals did you develop that ethos? Was that with you from day one or has it evolved over time? Was it a reaction to something? Yeah, I think luckily, um, I spent a lot of time traveling the world surfing as a kid. And so I was in face with a lot of environmental issues and I saw a lot of communities coming together to support efforts, to honor the thing that, that you know, they love so much. And that resonated. Um, I was in a touring band for a long time in the mid nineties, late nineties. And I was a lead singer of like a punk funk reggae band. And we were out all over the place and, and we, you know, played with bands like Primus and I was in the studio with Eminem when he was cutting his Slim Shady stuff. It's hilarious. And uh, yeah, we were struggling. You know, we weren't anything successful, but we were out there touring a lot. And I remember playing a ton and ton of clubs and the clubs where we'd roll into and the sound guy was hung over and the bartenders were kind of, you know, not awesome. And the promoter was kind of absent. Well, that resonated with us and didn't make us feel good. Right. And then, so the show wasn't, as good as it could have been. And so the experience to the audience wasn't as good as it could have been. So the tips to the bar weren't as good as they could have been. And the feeling when you left wasn't as good as it could have been. So from an early time, it resonated, like how simple would it be to just spread a little bit more love and kindness and compassion through the experience in, in every lane, whether it's the song I was writing at the time and how I was singing it, or was it looking the person in the eyes that was giving me the interview on the radio or was it saying thank you to the, to the staff? Or was it meeting the door guy, going up and introducing myself? Hey, we're playing tonight. And they're like, why are you saying hi to me? It's like, because you're important. You're the first person people see. 
you're smiling, they're smiling, I'm smiling. And so I learned that those simple tactics could really um, help deliver a better experience to everybody. And I also found that that really wasn't happening, you know, more and more and more I'd play and then I'd, I'd play some festivals and nothing against the, the ops crew and the production crews. I love them dearly, but, and I don't know, I don't care if you smoke either, but people would just smoke and flick their cigarette butts on the ground. And I remember like going, why are you doing that? Just pick it up. He's like, that's the way it's been done. You know, they cut a zip tie and they throw it on the ground. That's the way it's been done. I'm like, so when I launched Winter Wondergrass 11 years ago, I'm like, well, that's not the way I'm going to do it. Fast forward now, like our crews have, we have a yoga teacher on site. We have a nutritionist. We have a self-care trailer for everyone to get what they need to make sure that they're comfortable and they're supported. It's not to say don't party and have a good time or have a smoke. I really don't care. But it's the intention, you know, and it's the integrity of which you walk with that really I've seen leads to a better experience to that fan, back to the fan. How does it better for that fan? It's staying healthy. It's staying positive. It's being supported. It's serving organic food. It's, it's being there and attentive to the needs of, of everybody. Yeah. And um, I think I learned that along the way. And, and um, I went to Burning Man early on. I've, I've been only been there twice. And the one thing I, I remember mostly from the, the early year, it was probably, I don't know, 15 years ago, was Leave No Trace. It was the most simple thing that I saw around. And I really I, you know, gravitated towards that. And I support and work with the, the Leave No Trace nonprofit. But it's that simple. Just leave no trace, you know. So yeah. all all these experiences, um, I've stolen ideas and and uh, influence from to come to the place we are now. Are your events generally connected with or associated with the same site? Like, do you develop a relationship with the land, or do you, you know, do you just go where you can get a permit? Like, how do you think about place? Um, originally, when I got into throwing. Uh, festivals um, after my touring days kind of subsided. I had I'd been a venue owner and um, had a lot of other little businesses going on. And I, I threw the first event mostly due to the beauty of the site. For me, the site is just as important as the, the headlining band. Um, if we can find a space for people to feel inspired within, we're already off to a good you know, a good start. So it's really important for me to, to produce insights that make me feel good. Um, when I launched Winter Wondergrass, that was, you know, my, my main thing now and probably the most sex successful um, festival. I launched it in a, in a parking lot in a small town near Vail. And the reason for that was because it, it was a parking lot, but it was so cool. It was an independent brewery with all the brewery, brew equipment out back and a good view of the mountains and a cool little space that was intimate and build fire pits and put up a tent. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is great. And then when we grew, I looked to a site that would deliver um, the same things you'd want in like your dream house. Like what's the view like, what's the view like from here? How's it look at the looking at the stage? What about this way? Can people walk to site? Is there an easy way to get around to late nights and hotels and public transportation? So those all, all kind of pile into to the choice. Um, when I went to Squaw Valley in Lake Tahoe um, five years ago, I wasn't looking to expand winter wondergrass. Like I believe in um, quality over quantity, you know, every step and everything I do, I, it's not about let's scale it. Let's grow it up. Let's build it. It's going to be big. Then you'll sell it, make this money. And I'm like, that's not my path. I'm okay with that path. It's just not my path. So 
I don't want to do it to do it. I want to do it because it means something. And I want to do it where it means something. So I walked onto the, this beautiful location at Squaw Valley with the guy giving me the tour. And we had like seven sites to see. And this might've been the first or second. I walked out there and I was like, that's the stage. That's the backdrop. I'm like, this is it. Like, obviously, like, let's do it, you know? And then when we moved to Steamboat, it was the same thing. I walked onto the site and, you know, the, the gal working for the festival, she's like, wait a minute, 10 years ago, I used to see this band called Sucker. Was that you? I'm like, oh yeah, that was me. <laughs> and uh, that kind of love and that connection and that vibe all contributed to the appeal of the site. And then where we're doing our latest thing with Billy Strings Renewal, that site um, found me and it's the most beautiful 150 acres of land I've, I've, I've ever been on for an event. And, and really, even if there's not an event, it's absolutely stunning and gorgeous. And had, just having a creative call with, with, with their team. Um, and I give them a huge nod of respect because we're on the same page of like, we can bring in a Ferris wheel. That's cool. That's not us. That's not what we want to do. We want to honor the absolute raw, existing, beautiful aesthetics as mother nature built them. And let's just shine a light on the tree or bring some flowers or place the stage in the perfect location. So the fans visual is absolutely stunning. Like it's really important. And, and that's, um, that's something I'll, I'll, I'll always do because again, it, it's, it builds the journey and it builds the foundation for that inspired feeling we want our fans to have. Yeah. What, um, what's the, what's the, um, What's the significance of the bonfire name for you? It seems like it seems like a, a word you've used in multiple incarnations. Yeah, um, I had a band called oh, I still have a band called Bonfire Dub, um, which is a little a little nod to my 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 favorite genre reggae music. But uh, bonfire means community, you know, like everybody thinks that this is this is modern times, right? Like right now and if I, I i work hard to get a snapshot of humanity uh, whether it's books i choose or travels i i experience but this isn't the time this is this the time we're living and, and there's a few things that have stood the test of time right and that is conjugating around a fire and celebrating you know for the last hundred thousand years like humans have been doing that there's evidence of that and there's a reason it's very powerful you know, when it gets dark and there's one source of light, it attracts you. When it's cold and there's one source of heat, it attracts you. And when there's a place to perform or share a story or a song, you've got everyone's ear already leaning around the bonfire. And for me, that feeling is the feeling I want everyone to take home with them after they come to our event. So it kind of made sense as, we, as I created a new company and changed the name. I was like, it's bonfires kind of exemplifies who I am and, and what we want to do. Yeah. Yeah. To, um, to rewind a little bit, you mentioned that, um, you grew up spending a lot of time on and along rivers and, um, in that type of environment. Um, how did that come to pass? Like what, what was, what were your early years like in that regard? Were you sort of the kind of kid who just got up in the morning, went outside and wandered around or, you know, how did that, how, that was me, right? I grew up kind of in the suburbs, but you know, there were woods in the backyard and like, I can't, I can remember just leaving in the morning and then coming back at dinner time. And I don't even know what I did all day except wander around. <laughs> yeah. 
Where'd you grow up? Uh, outside of New Haven, Connecticut, a uh, town called Hamden, which was which was much more rural when I was a kid. Yeah. I, I grew up in New Jersey and, and what you're saying is definitely something I was lucky enough to experience. I think, you know, I turned 50 this year and uh, reflecting with my daughter that there'll never be a time where you can just go out and wander like we used to come home when it's dark, yeah. you know? So my wanderlust started early. Um, I think um, a lot of it is, is just somehow, you know, um, what you're born with, right? Like my siblings are different. We're, we're similar enough, but innately, I just wanted to adventure and explore and travel. My dad was an airline pilot, which was pretty cool. So I got that sense of travel. And then um, I grew up going down to our little beach house on the Jersey shore and eventually migrated there. And that was absolute freedom. We lived in this little cottage on this little block and surfing became, you know, pretty popular in the East Coast in the 70s, but it was very much counterculture and looked down upon, you know, by the cops and the community. And, and so we had the, the one little block that they turned into the surfing beach. And so all the surfers would come to this beach and then the surf shop would, would open. And then um, we started reading about all these different locations that people surfed, you know, when I was 10, 11, 12, in Bali and, and Hawaii and Europe and Africa. And so that really inspired me to want to visit those places. And so I spent a lot of time um, surfing around the globe for a bit. And then I realized in my early 20s, as I faced the surf industry, which had become so ego driven and such BS, like people bark at you, or I've seen people bark at people that were non-locals coming out into the lineup, even when they weren't being idiots. Now, if you're being a fool, then sure, you, you might get some negative feedback but just the whole concept of this is my wave this is my ocean I really did not um I didn't I didn't feel that so then I kept traveling but it wasn't all about the ocean it was more about what culture do I want to visit and where what do I want to learn about you know and uh, I started going to some really weird places around the planet and then I didn't really get into the river culture until much later in life and I was a surfer and I would moved to Colorado and, and was always, you know, looking for that water fix. And my band was playing in Kauai 11 years ago and uh, Laird Hamilton was out there on a stand-up paddleboard. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. And then I heard there were people doing it in the rivers, like a couple. So I came back to Colorado and was one of the first people to really push that sport so we started paddleboarding rivers 11 years ago no one out there you get looked at like had six heads which was awesome and i really started falling in love with the power of the river um one of my favorite early books is siddhartha which is you know there's a ton of river reference and in any spiritual um um you know camp if you will or or religious camp there's there's a huge amount of um story that's related to the river and there's great metaphors and it really resonated with me and the more and more I was paddling I was like well I'm really feeling this I've never felt so good never felt so alive and started a company and then and then five six years ago I was invited to go down the Grand Canyon so we were a couple of the first people to paddleboard 21 days 277 miles through the Grand Canyon and uh, I did swim a lot and I was faced with you know great fears every day and one thing that or many things I remember from that trip, but a few of the most important were that I'd never felt better. I'd never felt more clarity. I've never been more creative. I was writing, I was writing songs, I was writing blogs. I was 
doing a ton of yoga, I was meditating and, and I went into it kind of, you know, I have a bunch of injuries, right? Like everybody, as you get older, nothing was hurting, you know, everything felt really good. Time was gone. There's no watch, you know, and I'd never felt better. I felt like every cell in my entire body was vibrating at a different level and just felt pure love, excitement and felt my spirit. And so then we came back and bought a company that had permits to do five day river trips and, and the rest is kind of history, you know, then, then the river wondergrass, et cetera. So I think the journey to get to the rivers, you know, started with that youthful, um, you know, excitement about travel. And then, uh, and then I ended up here. What are the, um, what are the daily fears on the river? What, what kind of things do you encounter that, that are like such visceral, visceral challenges that you use the word fear? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm not a river person, so I hadn't been, I didn't grow up on the river. You know, a lot of people I know now grew up since they were six, seven, eight, you've got that. I've got that in the ocean, but Grand Canyon, you know, you'd read a map and it would say, um, you know, today is or this route, the next three days, 22 miles. And you're facing class three, class three, class six, class eight, you know, these massive rapids, many of them you can't scout. And we'd get to camp each night and, uh, you know, have some food and then I'd sit and, and, and then lay on the river shore and, and go to sleep and just listen to the huge, enormous turbulence just downstream. And I was reminded of the adventurers that kind of passed before and, you know, John Wesley Powell in 1869, like running these rivers with no gear and no proper boats and what they faced and, and, and reading his journals about these massive hydraulics and, you know, getting held down under the water for a long period of time and, and going through each morning, like, okay, if I go down and I get recirculated, I get dropped, you know, like first thing, don't panic, get a lot of air. You might be down there for a long time. It, it turns into the dark room. It goes pitch black. You get upside down. You don't know what's going on. What if I can't get off my board? What's the rescue technique on my gear? <clears throat> Where's my knife in case I need to cut myself out of something? Like, going through those very real scenarios every day was, um, was kind of facing a lot of fear and, um, there was no choice though, which made it easier to face because there was only one solution and that was getting in the river and, and getting through it. And I learned to just release, use that fear and, and then release it and, and, um, acknowledge how lucky I was to experience those feelings, those the heightened senses. And um, I just made sure every time I went into the rapids, I looked at my buddy and said, I love you. <laughs> you know, wanting that to be the last thing I, I said on the planet, if it happened to be my time. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you ever have the same or a similar fear as an event producer? Like, do you get an anxiety or uh, have you transcended that? Like how, how does that, how does the build up to an event, affect you? Yeah, I, I get a lot of anxiety and there is a lot of fear. Um, there's the normal stuff you think of, like I'm risking everything to be an independent promoter. And if it all goes upside down, you know, I lose my house. That's, yeah. that's a very real thing. You know, I walked away from partners. I walked away from um, the major industry players uh, as much as I respect the heck out of them all because I wanted to remain independent. I'm, I'm not, I'm not good when I'm not like leading the charge. Um, so to do that, it takes a lot of courage and certainly I'm afraid of the financial impacts and ramifications. The other thing that I, that I experience is um, 
I feel every single person's energy that comes on site and I feel responsible for that. You know, the 200 or 300 people that are working for me, the five, 6,000 attendees and the hundred or so artists, like everything that they encounter, I encounter. And so I am very concerned and put a ton of time in making sure that we are set up for success and that they are safe and that they are taken care of. Um, and it takes me weeks to kind of get over that um, after the event because you just hold everyone's energy and I'm holding all of that space. You know, I don't, I enjoy my festivals a lot, but I'm not, I'm never not present. I'm never like, oh, let's go out and like have some drinks tonight. Like I, I can't do it. I, I want to be so present and so engaged and so thoughtful and so aware that <clears throat> I can handle anything that happens and I can be a positive influence and um, someone that can reassure in a, in a tough situation. So then you always run the scenarios, you know, whether it's, um, I mean, currently COVID yeah. or there's a lightning strike. Um, what if we need to cancel because of, of uh, conditions on the road? At what point do you cancel knowing that you're going to lose everything, but it might not keep somebody safe. Like those are really, really serious um, um, you know, scenarios to face and at the end of the day I'm the only one facing them because I am the owner and the producer and all of those things and that's fine I'll take that we've got a great team that shares it with me but um, that's one thing that's the hardest part about this job um, it's 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 difficult and I don't know if it's fear or anxiety or a combination in there or you know insanity um, I saw a great sticker at a, at a promoter a promoter's office, a pretty famous promoter's office I went into and it said, friends don't let friends throw music festivals. And that just resonates with me like all the time. <laughs> you know, people are like, hey, can I get in that? I'm like, okay, how much money do you have? Like I have 20,000, can you lose all of it? I don't know, what do you mean? Like, can you lose all of it? Can, you, can this all go away and are you okay? Cause then let's start there, right? Because that's what being a promoter is not but that's, that's the monetary fear. And that's nowhere as big as the, the, the human fear of, you know, oh, oh gosh, like drinking and driving. Like I'm like, I am C because I like to talk to people. And I'm like, I, I really, I, I really want them to know that I'm there for them and I'm, and I'm aware of them and that you can rage and have a good time. Just please be mindful. Like, please take care of one another. Please look out for each other. And, and then we're going to succeed. So that's how my fear and anxiety weave together. Yeah, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've definitely uh, heard it said before that festivals are where rich people go to become poor. Another <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there a is there a sweet spot in terms of size that you like to think about? I mean, you know, you mentioned the holding of the energy, and you've actually specifically quoted the number of attendees. Like, do you like a festival that size or do you, do you see a bigger palette as being interesting and, or, you know, like how, how do you think about the, the, the number of souls that you can accommodate at once? Yeah. I think um, I have always against so much pressure built slowly. You know, if I'm not hitting a home run with 500 people, even if I could sell a thousand, what's the point? Like, I don't want to scale to scale. Um, I do want to be successful. And there is that number, right? Like you do a 5,000 person festival, you need to sell 
4,500 tickets, right? Or, or more um, because we spend so much on the experience. So going bigger would be helpful, but it's not what draws me. And I think um, that's my niche. You know, I'm happy. I go out and guide eight River Wondergrass trips for 25 people. Each one's four days, five days. I want to be there for every person on every trip. That's only 25 people. And I say like one soul at a time. You know, we're changing the world one person at a time. We're delivering an incredible experience to one person at a time. And there's plenty of great promoters out there that do the big stuff. And it certainly is exciting. I'd love to be on a team once or just sit in the, sit in the ops room because it's very impressive and it's, um, it's a great deal of work to do that. But that's not what draws me. What draws me is, is doing something beautiful for the space that we picked understanding that the community like Buena Vista or Steamboat Springs or North Lake Tahoe or Southern Vermont, like these are delicate, amazing, beautiful, naturally inspired communities that I want to honor. I want them to go, wow, that's amazing that they came into town and integrated with the community and worked with what made sense from a capacity perspective. I never want to be the guy that just comes in and just brings a festival to your town. Like I, I want to live in your town. I want to be in your town. I want to want to vacation in your town or, or live there. Um, and so that kind of determines the capacity, but I like winter wondergrass is like 5,000, you know, that's kind of my number. Um, I really like that, you know, a little bit more. Sure. Uh, that's fine. But anything over 10,000, I think that's, that's not my, it's not my arena, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Have your sites at all. Um, I don't know the right, right way to, to parse the question. So I'll, I'll say it the, the, maybe the messy way. And if it doesn't make sense, I'll try to restate it, but are any of your sites impacted by climate change? Like, are you seeing severe problems with like river flooding or fires or, you know, how, how is that reality impacting what you do? Um, it's pretty real. I mean, <clears throat> we are partnered with um, Altera, the ski company that, that owns the Icon Pass and several, um, incredible mountains, uh, all across the world actually. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm privy to what they face, which is definitely a, a climate challenge in all of their resorts. Um, currently I was just messaging my contacts in, in Tahoe, right. They just evacuated South Lake Tahoe and, and the West shore. Um, those are my friends and, and family that are out there. And so it impacts me greatly. Then I messaged them, what can we do? How can we raise awareness? Can we raise funds? How can we support so, you know, there was, there's been fires out there the past several years that have impacted us um, indirectly, not, not in the winter. Uh, we work with Protect Our Winters, which is a, an advocacy group that really brings the story of our receding, you know, snow sport industry to Capitol Hill. And they're a phenomenal NPO um, that we love, we love to support, love the work that they're doing because we're seeing it, you know, we're seeing less snow, we're seeing warmer temperatures, we're seeing the impact of climate change to the things we love to do, whether it's surfing or mountaineering or skiing or snowboarding. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, with the river industry, you see it as well. There's a, there's a drought in the West and people don't understand that, that there's been a drought in the West for 20 years. Yeah. Not enough water for, for Southern California, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico. There never was going to be the, the plans that were utilized to divvy up the water sources a hundred years ago. They don't work. They never were going to work. And they were based on like a huge, you know, wet cycle of, of seasonal um, rain flow. So we're in a really, really deep problem that people just don't seem to want to face. 
and it's I always say like I love politics I love geopolitics I love going to bat with or going to bat with people on the right the left climate people climate denier like I hate all all those topics are stupid like let's talk about what's the reality on the ground water lack of water climate is changing that's a fact I, I don't care what your perspective is on how we got to this point let's talk solutions let's empathize with the people that are you know living in those in those in those worlds where they don't have a choice to get off coal at this moment or they don't have a choice to get you know close their farms because the, the water sources are drying up and i think if we go and meet people there and in those environments we can find solutions and raise awareness and unite as opposed to just delivering a, a ridiculous polarized message um, so I like to jump in those worlds. I'm really inspired and passionate about having that conversation. And yeah, we're impacted like all of us are um, directly and indirectly by the changing forces of nature right now. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see, um, do you see your business as having, um, I mean, I know you, at least initially being identified with sort of, I don't know geographically how you'd say it, but sort of the mountain States area in the West, do you, um, do you see, all of North America as your canvas or do you, do you just, are you focused regionally? How do you think about that? Uh, I mean, really, really the world, <laughs> my, my, you know, sense of being is, is a, a human on the planet, not a guy in Colorado. Um, I love promoting nationally for our festivals. You know, we have, you look at our, our demographics, you know, 50% are from in-state and 50% are from, upwards of 20 or 30 states that fly in there gives me go. great to bring people into the community and show them a good time and thank them for coming. Um, so, you know, back to discussing kind of our ethos of producing and, and bonfire entertainment and honoring the people, like the more people I can bring into our little ecosystem and inspire, the more people are going to go back into their communities across the, across the country and share that story. And, and, and hopefully it's like, wow, we went to something different and we were treated so well and the music was great. And the town was so, so kind and the staff was was cleaning up and 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 i'm going to be inspired to do that when i throw my kid's birthday party or the local dance like that's the point is to reach as many people as possible um around the country and then someday we'll figure out how to do this um internationally already working on a river wondergrass international trip in a couple years to nepal potentially 14 days through nepal and and just trying to, you know, keeping, keep, keep reaching people and being inspired by them and, and delivering some inspiration on our, our side as well. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, all right. Uh, just to go down the rabbit hole a little bit, can you tell me about, um, you know, what was the musical journey? How did music start in your life? Um, you know, were there older siblings and you picked up their music? Like, how did that all happen for you? Yeah, for sure. I was the youngest and my first record was, uh, I can't say exactly, but it was a combination of uh, the best of the doors, Bob Marley Live, that London cut, which is unreal, and uh, Live Dead. That's some good shit. It's some good shit, but the Live Dead threw me for a loop, right? Because that was my first. I'm listening to this. I'm like, man, there's only three songs on this side of the tape, and they're like 15 minutes long. It was like the 11, right? So and one of them's years. feedback. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I don't know about this band, The Grateful Dead. So, that kind of probably delayed my journey there. Um, gr growing up surfing, reggae is a huge part of that culture. So I listened to a lot of reggae and the words of Bob Marley resonated. I thought that's how people wrote songs. Every song had a meaning. Every song had a message. That's crazy. Like there's not one cheesy Bob Marley tune. 
that doesn't mean something to him and his, and his, and his place on the planet. So that was really to this day. I mean, it really resonates with me. I still play that music. And then um, getting older, I finally stopped just going to the parking lots of the Grateful Dead shows and, and hand drumming. And I actually went in and uh, you know, that was, that was a huge part of my uh, musical evolution and actually seeing what that music could do with my own eyes and my own ears and how it transformed you being there. I was like, wow, that, what a journey. And then I hopped on dead tour and, uh, you know, sold grilled cheeses and, and <laughs> lived in the van and, and did all those things. And, and what resonates with me to this day is that sense of community and that willingness to participate. And I remember seeing people in suits and ties and in like, you know, Indian garb, like, you know, or, you know, just completely full hippies and then uh, business people, like, and everyone's jiving. Down. I'm like, that's the point right there. And I love seeing all those people come together and just resonate because they shared that common thread of that music. And then, and then I realized what improv meant and how that's really an important part of, of the music I love now. Um, and uh, that, that, that was a big part you know, seeing the dead. And then, and then when Jerry died, I, you know, definitely, you know, faded out and was listening to some more hard rock and classic rock and um, punk rock and, and followed that path for a little bit. And then, and then, and then I fell into bluegrass, not because I was, I, I was like, I heard bluegrass. I'm like, Oh, that's great. You know, I've, I still to this day learn the history of bluegrass and, and, and the, and the foundational members, like members like Bill Monroe and what he's done and John Hartford and, the stories of these people are so incredible and so amazing. But what brought me into the bluegrass world was I was playing a festival and um, the banjo player from leftover salmon, uh, Mark van who, who passed away. He saw what I was doing, which was like spoken word and all this kind of freestyle. And he's like, Oh, it's great. Come play with us. And I'm like, what do you do? He's like, you know, playing this band leftover salmon. I'm like, all right. So he invited me on stage and I freestyled with the bluegrass band and it was crazy. And I was like, what is this? This is nuts. And, and I fell in love with them and they took a liking to me. Next thing you know, I'm flying around the country, like sitting in with leftover salmon, like freestyling as like a punk, punk rock dude. And I just started being really impressed and, and feeling so comfortable in that community. So the community, the energy around bluegrass captured me before the actual music. And now I'm lucky, luckily I'm catching up to understanding bluegrass, but already loving the essence of it so much so that's kind of been it's kind of been my journey with everything i do i kind of i kind of get to the place through um wanting to find it but not having an idea of what it is i want to find that's fascinating <laughs> i uh i wondered i thought maybe you look familiar i think i bought a grilled cheese or two from you back in the oh, day <laughs> our thing was the broccoli garlic grilled cheese and we had the corner on the market i'd steam the broccoli and I had always bought like whole wheat or really good bread and I'd slice the cheddar cheese. And then we put the steamed broccoli on top of the cheddar cheese, grilled cheese and sprinkle a little garlic salt. And it's some of the greatest things, you know, like after the festival, just sitting there going through like 20, 30 loaves of broccoli, garlic, grilled cheeses, people would just call out, you know, coming down the crowd, like, where's the broccoli? Garlic? <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> 
yeah. even then, man, you, you, you over delivered for sure, because you could yeah, have gotten yeah, away yeah. with a lot less. <laughs> That's the theme right there. Yeah. It, it's funny. Cause I, I, I was selling Sierra Nevada pale ale. Remember when they came out, us East coasters, like, what is this? Like, yeah, I do. Oh, I do. It was like the first craft beer. It was. Right? Yeah. I remember that. And, uh, I started to go find it and sell it. And, you know, 30 years later, Sierra Nevada is my, my, not my only beer partner nationally, you know, it's, it's pretty fun. A lifelong relationship. <laughs> yeah. They love that story. <laughs> let me, uh, let me ask you one more business question. Then I'll, I'll let you go. I know you, you've got to be busy. Um, do you think as a result of the way you operate and the way you prioritize sort of mission and culture and community, do you think that, um, do you, do you run a less profitable enterprise as a result, or are you saying you don't have to sacrifice the business outcomes to do the right thing? Like, how do you, how do you square that? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, I think um, I start with my, the goal, right? Um, how do we want to, how do I want to be seen when I leave this planet? What did I create that was meaningful? And so the path to get there certainly isn't just, look what we did, look how much money we made. And we cut everything and we, and we did it and crushed it. I think the path to get there is like, you know, you make small improvements and micro adjustments. And while you're doing that, you're building a foundation, right? And so you might lose a little bit because you spent too much there and you took a risk. Then that comes back. And then all those people that you impress, they come back. And now your community is growing and your audience is getting bigger because of how you deliver the experience. So we certainly haven't reached our most profitable years. <laughs> we were getting there. Um, you know, we were an independent independent promoting company that was, you know, got in the black and was, was debt-free up until COVID. Mm -hmm. Now that's changed and that's okay. That's just another challenge. But I don't want to sacrifice things that are important to the foundation of the business in order to make short-term profits. I'm just, I'm just not into it. I'm, it's not how I go about things i don't think that makes sense and I, but i do want to make money i mean you know hopefully i'm a conscious capitalist I mean, that's kind of where I, my category like doing the right things for the right reasons and finding an intersection of profitability within that context and then building a community i'm not selling widgets i'm selling experiences i want to know all the people that come to my festival like i really do you know, and if I can do that by providing a better experience and keeping capacity limited, then we all win. And I'm sitting here at, you know, hopefully 80, 90 years old, and I'm still doing it. And I'm still being inspired by what we created because it was created with intention. And the intention isn't solely profitability, yet it's a component for survival. That's right. That's right. Well, I think that's, that's a good note to go out on. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate learning about you and hearing your perspective. Uh, it's a lot of fun to talk to you. So thank you. Awesome. You too. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Scotty Stoughton and the team at Bonfire Entertainment. Thank you, Ant Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. And while you're on the website, make sure you RSVP for our next live taping with classical pianist Ji Yoon Kim. Join us again next week. And in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. If I ask you